0: Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, Travelers Far and We, by Donald D. Westlake. Uh, first published in Science Fiction Stories, May 1960. This is a uncollected story. The only place to find it is in... Science Fiction Stories, May 1960, and on the official Donald E. Westlake website, where they have uh, pictures of that scan. Um, And I guess I I processed the PDF. Um, But that's it. It's never been republished. Um, It's kind of a strange story, and I think that's why we need to talk about it
1: after I ask you to read it for us, Eric. Well, that'll be my pleasure, Jesse. Thank you travelers far and we Roger turned right on 8th Avenue from 14th Street and drove uptown Phil was asleep in the seat on his right Roger readjusted himself behind the wheel cut between two cabs barely missed a truck gradually worked the car this year's Oldsmobile with the latest sanitary equipment over to the left side of the road 8th Avenue is one way uptown, and Roger drove along the farthest lane over to the left. The lights were staggered, and Roger pushed the car at just under 30 miles an hour, clicking across each intersection just as the lights snapped green. He turned left on 45th Street, across 9th Avenue, followed 45th Street down to, to the end, turned right, and drove up the ramp to the parkway. He speeded up to 35 miles an hour and glanced over at Phil, the poor guy was still asleep at 175th street Roger turned off and took the approach to the George Washington bridge he drove across the bridge rolled the window down dropped the 50 cent piece into the toll taker's hand rolling the window back up he pulled out into the Jersey traffic Roger appeared to be about 40 since it was a chill October day he wore a tailored herringbone tweed top coat, a gray hat and tan gloves His face was full-fleshed, but not puffy. He didn't wear glasses, and he looked like a successful businessman. Phil, asleep on the seat beside him, wore approximately the same clothing. Although his face had its own individuality, it gave the same impression as did Rogers. A man of means, an executive, a man who gives commands, a man of business and foresight, and a good income. Roger swooped the gray Olds halfway round a clover leaf, swung gently and smoothly into a turnoff, barely touched the power brakes, and the car purringly decelerated as he drove into the tiny Jersey town. The bank was on the main road of town. Roger turned into the driveway and parked behind a car waiting by the drive-in teller's window. He took out checkbook and pen, wrote out a check to cash, and when his turn came, drove up to the window, rolled down the window at his side, and handed the check in to the teller. After a minute, the teller pushed a wad of greenbacks out at him. Roger took the money, tossed it carelessly on the seat between himself and Philip, rolled up the window, and drove around the modest brick bank building out to the street and turned back the way he had come. Another 50 cents to the man at the toll gate, and Roger drove the car swiftly back across the bridge. This time, he took the local street's exit, turned north, drove until he came to the drive-in restaurant. He parked before the neon-coated, modernistic glassed-in building and waited until the chilly girl car hop came over to take his order. He asked for a hamburger, a cup of coffee, apple pie with ice cream. The car hop went away, and Roger picked up the cash that had been lying on the seat, counted it, shoved it into the glove compartment with the rest of the money there, except for one $10 bill, and put that bill on top of the dashboard. He ate his meal, handed the $10 to the car hop, and said, keep the change. He knew when he said it that it was a stupid thing to do, but he didn't really care. He backed out to the highway, leaving the car hop stunned behind him and headed back toward the city. He glanced at his watch almost 4.30. He had to get downtown soon. He drove down 9th Avenue, keeping to the left, turned onto 14th Street over to Lexington, turned uptown again, cutting off a cab that was coming the other way on 14th Street, and held traffic up for quite a while, during which he executed some complicated maneuvering, making a left turn onto 17th Street. At 17th and 5th, he had to stop for a red light. The light turned green, but he sat there daydreaming. A car behind him honked raucously, impatiently. Roger came to with a start, stole the engine, got it going again, and turned right on 5th. The honking had awakened Phil. He sat up, blinking, rubbing his eyes, and said, What time is it? Not quite five. I might as well stay awake then. Phil looked out at the traffic and the crowds of pedestrians pretty crowded, he said. Getting close to Christmas shopping rush, said Roger. That's true. That's going to be a real mess. I'm not looking forward to it. They drove in silence for a while. They went into Central Park, circled it, came out on West 72nd Street, turned right, drove up to 125th, turned right again over to 7th Avenue, headed back downtown. They had a terrible time getting through Times Square, A cab driver rolled his window down and cursed Roger in two languages. Roger maintained his dignity, stared straight ahead, drove on downtown. As they turned onto 14th Street, Phil broke the silence. He waved out at all the traffic surrounding them and said, I wonder how many of them are like us? Roger shrugged. More every day, I suppose. Makes you stop and think. It does that. They headed up Fifth Avenue again amid the cabs and the groaning buses. As they crossed 47th, Phil said, It's six o'clock. All right, said Roger. I'm rather tired. They were stopped by a red light at 48th. Roger put the emergency brake on and slid over to the right. Phil clambered over him and got behind the wheel. He didn't get there before the light changed. The cab behind blatted its horn at them. Phil released the emergency brake and started forward slowly. The cab blatted again. Phil swerved erratically, barely missing a cab on his right. Roger relaxed in his seat, leaning against the right-hand door. I cashed another check this afternoon. He said, How much do we have left? I don't know. Millions? At 59th, they were stuck behind a car trying to make a left turn. Phil laughed. Bet he's one of us. More every day, murmured Roger. His eyes were closed. They continued uptown, turned left at 72nd, over to 9th Avenue, turned downtown. Phil watched the other traffic. His face was tired, lonely, wistful. He watched the pedestrians hurrying along the sidewalk, bumping into one another, cursing one another, straining the first to the corner. They crossed 59th Street just after the light changed. A cab slammed on its brakes. Phil looked in the rearview mirror, watched the cab cross the intersection. He smiled faintly. He said, do you suppose we'll ever be able to get out of the car? But Roger didn't answer. He was asleep.
0: Okay. It's an interesting story. Seems to be a lot of... uh driving instructions. <laughs> um, why is it in original science fiction stories? Um, it wasn't a very famous market. It was kind of a low-rent market, in fact. But um, I, I've i looked at what other people have said about this story because I found it a bit hard to understand myself. I think I've got a handle on it. But it's a pretty slippery handle, so... Um, <laughs> People don't know what to make of it, basically, but I think I do. Um, have you got a handle on it? You you agreed to do a show on it.
1: I did, indeed. I, uh, I think I have a handle on it, too. It may or may not. Well, we may have the same handle. I'm not <laughs> sure of that. But one thing that is, in fact, different is that uh, this is that... I have a relationship to the content of Mm -hmm. the story that you don't have. Yeah, you're a New Jersey Um, guy. No, I'm I'm a New Jersey guy now, but I grew up in New York. Right. And I went to high school in Manhattan. And except for the trip to the bank and the drive-through hamburger joint... Uh, all of this is set in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to high school in Manhattan, and I was in high school from 1959 to 1962. In other words, I was there then, and I have, of course, since driven in Manhattan many, many, many times. I'm watching this, I'm reading this, and I'm following it on my in the map in my mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know every one of these turns. I actually I looked exactly up
0: every turn. <laughs>
1: and if you look it up today... They'll find one problem when mm-hmm. they start going downtown on Seventh Avenue north of Central Park. Seventh Avenue has been renamed at that part, Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But other than that, this thing isn't well. It's not entirely accurate. It says that he enters um, to goes north on the Parkway, but in fact, it's the West Side Highway is what it was called then, mm-hmm. not the Parkway. Other than that, it's geographically entirely accurate, and it gives you some sense, or maybe I'm just remembering it from my own life, of the uh, incredible traffic in Manhattan. That is what inspired this story. I'm very
0: clear about that. Um, I I am not a commuter. I You know, when I commute, it's down the street, right? It's... <laughs> uh, I, I've been a commuter a few times um, but usually out of weird hours and such and I've uh, and yet rush hour which is not an hour right and it comes twice a day (laughs) it takes more than an hour Um, and sometimes there's rush hours on weekends and other you know other times Um, is a phenomenon that would be hard to understand for people from 500 years ago Certainly they understand, you know, waiting in line, but they don't, I think it would be difficult to grasp how strange the phenomena is. It's almost like um, you're a deer, and you're on the road, uh, or on the side of the road, and there are suddenly many noisy things rolling by, some of them making noises. Um, You don't know what they're doing, where they're going. And I've had this experience any time I've been stuck in traffic. Pretty much every time I've been stuck in a rush hour traffic somehow. You look out at all these cars, all these people, all these incredibly odd humans inside vehicles going places for reasons we can't understand. And sometimes I think about... You know, if I had maybe um, more leisure time than I allow myself, um, maybe I should just follow one of them and see where they go and what, what they're actually doing. Because it makes no sense. Why are they here? What are they doing? Why, why are they on this road? And You're talking about the people you see or you're talking about the people in the story? I'm talking about the people I see. And Ah. I'm confident that Westlake is in the exact same situation. This is a story about explaining a phenomenon that is difficult to explain. Um, The subtitle of this story, we don't know if Westlake gave it or the the publisher gave it, uh, editor gave it. It's a fable of futurity. Um... (laughs) I'm not sure it needs to be set in the future. Um, There's not much that's um, uh, speculative about this story, except for one thing, right near the beginning. uh, It goes like this. Roger readjusted himself behind the wheel, cut between two cabs, barely missed the truck, gradually worked the car, this year's Oldsmobile, with the latest sanitary equipment, over to the left-hand side of the road. Why would... A car needs sanitary equipment it sounds like they're living in a coronavirus state or something Wait, right would
1: you read that again sure we seem to have two different texts okay
0: roger readjusted himself between uh sorry behind the wheel cut between that's two.
1: not how mine my copy begins roger turned right on eighth avenue
0: uh no that's the first 14 that's the first that's sentence right.
1: That's right. Mm-hmm. Then Phil was asleep. Oh, I see. You're starting with the third sentence. I'm star-
0: starting okay. with the third sentence yeah, yeah, because no, that's you're the right. one you're right. that's about the strangeness. Yes, yes. Other than yes. other strangenesses that are happening. Roger readjusted himself behind the wheel, cut between two cabs, barely missed a truck, gradually worked the car, this year's Oldsmobile, with the latest sanitary equipment over to the left hand side of the road. The latest sanitary equipment lines up with something that happens right at the end of the story uh, when it says, he said, do you suppose we'll ever be able to get out of the car? Um, So, the way I interpret what's going on in this story, my handle, is that for some reason these two men, Roger and Phil, spend their day and perhaps their evening their lives driving around making traffic, making life difficult for other drivers. They speculate as to whether other drivers are in the same job as they are, and they agree that other drivers are, more and more of them, like them. And the reason that they're doing it is never explained, however... When he cashed another check, he says, how much do we have left? The other guy says, I don't know, millions? Right? (laughs) Why are all these people moving around the streets of Manhattan and into New Jersey and stopping at these drive-in restaurants and doing all the things in gas stations, all the things that they do? Why are they doing it? Well, it's kind of for money, right? It's their job. And that's what... This these guys' job is is to make life difficult for all the other drivers on the road. This would explain it. So, it, it, it doesn't make sense in a um, science fiction setting, exactly, but it does kind of put it as a science fiction setting, and it makes me think of the line about everybody complains about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Right? That line that people say is a kind of a joke. They complain about the weather, but they never do anything about it. Here, everybody complains about the traffic, but nobody does anything about it. Well, it seems to me that somebody is doing something about it, and they're deliberately making it worse. And it it is never hinted, even, that there's some government agency or some billionaire who's just trying to get a scheme going to make... Uh, you know, a new highway system. It's nothing like that. It's more like this is an analogy for our lives, sitting in this traffic, wondering who all these weirdos driving around (laughs) in these cars, going all the places they are, causing us headache after headache. These guys, they do all the things that annoy other drivers, but they are very relaxed about it because they're professionals.
1: Well, I, that's that's a plausible reading. It's not quite the reading that I have. Um, in and, and let me suggest why mine is slightly different. I, I do agree that uh, they're making the traffic, and there's more and more traffic all the time. Mm-hmm. And I believe that this is a sort of uh, metaphoric warning about what, Modern urban life will become where Manhattan in 1960 is the most densely populated place in the world, and New York is the most populous city in the world. There was a joke in those days. There were two that are relevant here. One was they finally figured out how to solve Manhattan's uh, traffic problem, make all of the avenues one way mm-hmm. north. <laughs> Um, for those who are unaware of it, most of Manhattan is laid out in a grid structure where basically the avenues run north-south and the streets run east-west. And you can follow all of that around Central Park um, by following the directions in this, uh, in this story. The other joke that's relevant here is a riddle. How do you find a parking place in Manhattan? Answer? Buy a parked car. Right. So there is a key that that first, in the first paragraph, it's crucial, and you've identified it. This year's latest model has with it the latest sanitary equipment. (laughs) So manufacturers have been producing cars for a while that allow people to just keep moving and not stopping. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not just that these guys have built in stuff. They're not special. This is a growing situation for the mass market for those who, in fact, have cars. Now, Oldsmobile is a high-end car, but not the highest-end car. If It's a General Motors car and of the different lines, Cadillac was the highest. Oldsmobile um, was just a little bit below. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, so what we're seeing is Solid businessmen, but they are not fabulously wealthy. How is it that they have all of this money? The answer that comes to my mind, since we know it's set in the future, is just as as H.G. Wells understands in the opening pages of the time machine, why you can put your money in the bank and let it collect at interest. And presto, go into the future and you will be wealthy. The story is called Travelers Far and We. Mm -hmm. I think far in time, but we in space. (laughs) The other really crucial direction we have here is they had to get downtown quickly. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Whatever is allowing them to live as people going into the future requires that they touch base, at least on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. somewhere downtown downtown Manhattan. And the fact is, we know that they are this is the far future for them because we're told that Roger appeared to be about 40. And 40 is an interesting number of course. It's the traditional number of death and rebirth. 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days for the flood, and so on. Uh, So What we have here is a sort of urban, mobile myth. These guys cannot go far. Why do they go to Jersey to go to the bank? Why do they go north, meaning Westchester or perhaps the Bronx, um, in order to go to a hamburger joint? Because in Manhattan, with its dense population... There are no drive through banks and there are no drive through restaurants. Mm-hmm. So if these guys are going to get money and they're going to get food, they're going to have to go away. But they can't go far because their travel is we. Mm-hmm. That is, it's, it's restricted. It seems to me that what we get here is people who have gotten what they wished for. It's not that they are professionals, but, I mean, they could be but they made they made a deal you know we're going to go off into the future and we're going to see what it's like and in that future it turns out that their bank accounts have accumulated huge amounts of money but the trade-off is that they can't really get very far from manhattan they're stuck there <laughs> it's it's almost as if it's a joke on the provincialism of New Yorkers, you know you, your your commitment to the life that New York gives you is such that you really can't leave it. And if you have to leave it for money or food, you still have to get back. If you don't, the whole system collapses. Now, I would go a little bit further, as I think I've mentioned to you previously. If you read The Great Gatsby with an eye toward the use of cars. Mm-hmm. You'll find out that car or railroad car uh, or cab or truck, you'll find out that the word, a word that stands for the set of things that are cars, occurs on one third of the pages in the entire novel. Mm -hmm. The entire novel has to do with mobility and how modern America is separated from its landscape. Nick Carraway, right, Mm Carraway, Nick Carraway goes east from the Midwest. At the end, he does the opposite. The murder, the the death happens because of an auto accident. Uh, The hold of one character over the economic life of another is dangling the possibility of selling him at a good price a very expensive car as a used car that he can resell and so on. I won't go through an analysis of The Great Gatsby, but the point is it is very much a book that appreciates that starting out in the 20s, Because of our mobility, Americans are no longer tied to place. What Westlake gives us is a portrait of the future in which people are ever more entrapped in their own mobility. But surprisingly, the entrapment of that mobility requires that they be in a place, but a place that they cannot enjoy Hence the, uh, the wistful <laughs> look at the pedestrians who manage to walk on the street. Do you think we'll ever be able to get out of this car? No answer. He's already asleep. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a joke. It is the a joke. The whole thing is a joke. But it's a joke that's based on a beady look at what it means to be in an ever more mobile society. And, and by the way, since we're talking Manhattan here. In 1960, uh, I should tell you that coming from Brooklyn to go to school in Manhattan, I actually changed trains at Eighth Avenue and Fourteenth Street um, to go cross-town to get to my school. Um, I'm used to doing it all the time, and in fact, I was not alone. That is to say, more people, many more people, commuted—that is, got from home to work in Manhattan by subway. ...than by car. Mm -hmm. So what we're looking at, in a way... ...is the inevitable death of the automobile. Uh, But of course, once you get rid of the automobile... ...you can only go as far as the subway line allows you. So the whole concept of urbanization... ...is, I think, being examined here... ...as having become distorted... ...by the invention of modern means of transportation which will get worse in the future, and we will have to deal with our own waste. Hence, take a crap in your Oldsmobile. Mm -hmm.
0: The uh, title you brought up, uh, again, is uh, Travelers, Far, and We. Um, I recognize that. Uh, I didn't know what I recognized it from, and I had to sort of do some thinking and some searching. And I eventually did, I think I tracked it down. It's actually a, a play on the first line of Homer's The Odyssey. Uh, the Samuel Butler translation has it almost exactly here. Tell me, O oh Muse, of that ingenious hero who traveled far and wide after he had sacked the famous town of, Rome, uh, of Troy. So, that far and wide, these are travelers who do not travel far. And wide, they travel a very short distance, right? And there is nothing less epic than the commute. There's nothing less epic. Um, It is a necessary drudge, especially in a vehicle. Uh, If you're on a car, you know you're getting some exercise. In a vehicle, it's just a headache. And that car, you mean if you're walking on the street. It, yeah, if you're walking in on the street, it's exercise, at least, right? You right. know, you get to smell the... You might bump into somebody you know. In a car, it's, it's a headache. It is not something positive. So when, on page 86, he says he glanced at his watch, almost 4.30. He had to get downtown soon, and then we get more of the. what is the primary uh, scene of every paragraph of this story is moving, Somewhere, turning right, turning left, taking a turn here, you know, getting this car started again. Just physically moving around Manhattan and into New Jersey. The whole point of that is when we get to where he needs to get to, what happens? Not quite five. (laughs) Right? Right? The honking had awakened Phil. He had to get downtown because that's when rush hour starts. I guess, <laughs> like he has to. That it's may, almost may like a be. checkpoint, right? It in order to, it's it, it, in order to explain, you know, why I drive. I've got a young son, let's say, and I have to explain to him why I have to leave the house early in the morning and come back late at night. I said, "Well, I have to drive downtown to keep food on the table." So the kid is imagining what I'm doing. Well, I go downtown. It's lots of traffic. He can see it, right? And then I get to that checkpoint, and then I come back, and suddenly, magically, food appears on the table. There, It's it's those checks that they're cashing that he's shoving into the into the uh, glove compartment. And the the other line that was really interesting to me is he keeps, gives the car hop uh, change from his meal. Now, I don't think they're very far into the future because uh, one $10 bill was put... Uh, on the dashboard, he says, keep the change. And then it says, he says, or the story says, he knew when he said it that it was a stupid thing to do, but he didn't really care. He backed out of the highway, leaving the car hop stunned behind him. Why is the car hop stunned? Because there was no tip? No, because it was a huge tip. So when he cashes that check and shoves it into the glove compartment, uh, sous- counts the money puts the rest in the glove compartment, and he says millions? <laughs> I don't know how much is left. Millions? There's kind of like a double irony here, because obviously it wasn't millions that's in the glove compartment. It wouldn't fit. But also... I don't know how much is left in the bank. Indeed. It's it, it's unclear. So how much... Uh, like, he's cashing... Like, what are they doing? Why are they driving around?
1: I, I think I think they're driving around because... Having driven, how, however, they've made this tr- become travelers in the future who only appear to be 40 years old, however far in the future we are, um, we can gauge what money is worth. It takes 50 cents to get across the George Washington Bridge, and he buys just a hamburger and coffee and so on, just a single meal, mm-hmm. and says, keep the change from $10. At a hamburger joint, ten dollars is twenty times as much as the the uh, toll on the George Washington Bridge. To give you a point of comparison, these days, all of the bridges and tunnels that go into Manhattan, are charge in one direction only. That's to speed things up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the fare to get into Manhattan is really only half of what I'm about to tell you, or to get out. It's only half of. But in fact, the fare on the George Washington Bridge is now $15. Mm-hmm. Right? One crossing, $15. Of course, you can cross in the other direction for free. So 7 dollars 5 In other words, what was 50 cents is now 7 dollars 5 It's 15 times as much. It's as if he had paid $150 mm-hmm. today for a hamburger and said, keep the change. Why was it stupid? Because these people would then become...
0: Suspicious. Objects
1: of curiosity. Yes. And if cops pulled them over and made them get out of the car, <laughs> they would die. <laughs> they are, you know, it's like Charlie on the MTA, right? Will he ever return? No, he'll never return. His fate is still unlearned. He may ride forever beneath the streets of Boston, um, right? He, they cannot stop moving. They must stay in the car. They cannot do anything that will get someone to force them out. <laughs> That's why paying $150 for a hamburger meal is foolish, mm-hmm. it seems to me. I don't think, I mean, as I say, I, I read it slightly differently than you do. Um, you think that they are, this is their job. I think not because they can't stop at Christmas either. No. Nope. In fact, they know Christmas. They're not looking barrel. forward to it. I, right. I think they have just sort of modulated from people who once commuted to somehow being in this time shifting thing and they go on forever. And that's the future of America's mobile society. Manhattan First, <laughs> tomorrow the world. So the uh, the
0: definition of a fable uh, that I'm I'm looking at. It says, a short story, typically with animals as characters, conveying a moral. What is the moral of this story?
1: I think the moral of this story is get out and walk. <laughs> don't let yourself go into an unknown future. Di- right? I, I, I think it's saying don't be trapped. You know, in 1966, which is not too far from from this time, I think it was 66, Jacques Ellul has that book, which in English is called The Technological Man, in which he points out that we become like our machines. Right? It's not that the, the, the trains run on time. Mm. The trains made us run on time. We have to be there for the 818 from, you know, from Greenwich to get into Manhattan for our 9 o'clock office. The trains make us run on time. The cars make the people into commuters. And what this, uh, I think, is suggesting a little bit like uh, Ray Bradbury's The Pedestrian Mm. is that maybe it's better to get out and be on the sidewalk and stop all this incessant auto culture. Um, But, you know, figuring out the meaning of a fable is itself a whole other discussion, which is why when you read a story like this, there's always more to say.
0: <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward
1: sffaudio.